Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Have you ever been in a situation where you saw something wrong? You saw something wrong and you wanted to stop it? You wanted to stop it, but you were afraid. Well, I was 11 years old and on the school bus. And even though it was an early August morning, it was still that oppressive Memphis humid heat intensified by a busload of sweaty, squirming middle schoolers. And by the time Michael got on the bus at the corner of Knight Arnold and Hickory Hill, it was already pretty full. And as soon as I saw him, I began to worry. Because you see, Michael had a nose that looked like it had been broken about three times and never grown back quite right. And this made this ordinary-looking young white boy with shaggy brown hair the eternal target of other kids' bullying. And I think because he was so often teased, he had this look of expectation and fear from the get-go, which probably egged the bullies on even more. I was seated in about the middle of the bus, and as I could see as Michael got on, kids putting book bags and lunch boxes in the few available seats. And as Michael made his way down the aisle, the taunts began. Those sing-songy barbs about his name and his face. And Michael just kept slowly walking down the aisle to the back of the bus. And when he turned around, by that time, most of the kids had joined in the chorus, and he had been unable to stop the flow of tears. And as Michael walked back toward me, I wanted more than anything to stand up and give him my seat, or at least tell those kids to shut up. So what do you think I did? That's right, nothing. I looked away, and Michael walked to the back, of, back to the front of the bus for the rest of the ride. That was over 40 years ago, and I still think about that day, and I still wish that I had stood up for Michael, or at least scooted over and shared my seat. I think about how an act of kindness would have made a world of difference to him. You know, I know now that kids could be agents of change, but that would have never occurred to me then. Good afternoon. It's an honor to be here, and thank you for that lovely welcome. Um, and I have to admit, I wasn't sure if I belonged among all the distinguished clergy, the priests and rabbis and ministers who are part of this special series in our community. But then I looked up the purpose of the Lenten preaching series, and it says to hear from voices that can challenge inspire, instruct, or unite. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. Basically, history in ourselves does that. And if that's not enough, maybe I can get credit for 10 years at Catholic school. <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of familiar faces here today. And I know a lot of you are familiar with facing history. And we are a learning community that uses the lessons of history to stand up to bigotry and hate and to, to get students and teachers to do that. We really believe that people make choices and choices make history. And so when we get young people to think about the power of the individual to make change, we first have to get them to think about who they are 
And so in our classrooms across the globe, we're asking young people to think about their identity. And for many of them, it's the first time anyone's ever asked them those questions. Who are you? What are the vectors that make up your identity? What are your values? What would you be willing to stand up for? And so in that spirit, I'll share with you a little bit about my identity. I grew up here in Memphis. I uh, went to Rhodes College, and right out of college was like, got to go, and moved to Los Angeles. And uh, started with Facing History actually there 23 years ago, and came back to Memphis six years ago, and it's been wonderful and so grateful to be back. Um, I'm a wife, a sister, an aunt, a friend. I like to read and cook and garden, or at least look at my plants. And to de-stress, my husband and I teach our two cats to play ping pong. You heard me right, and I do have videos if anybody's interested. But a big part of my identity is as the leader of Facing History and Ourselves here in Memphis, and moreover, as an advocate for justice, a bigotry fighter, an anti-racist. And even though fighting bigotry and hate is so central to who I am today, it wasn't always that way. It wasn't until my 20s that I understood the importance of using my voice and, and why it mattered. And I had to wait until three things fell into place. Empathy, lessons from history, and how to use my voice. You know, there's basically two kinds of education. There's the formal kind, what we learn in schools, educational institutions and the informal kind, pretty much everything else, right? Our experiences, our culture, our religion, the time and place in which we're born, our family. And for me, probably like many of you, my family had a huge influence in shaping who I am and in my informal education. The person who had the most influence on my development of empathy was my mom. She was always asking in our daily encounters and, and conversations and wondering out loud how that other person might feel. You know, especially if they were alone in a social situation or being teased or bullied. My mom was incredibly observant and curious about the people around her, and I'm sure that's how I developed my empathy and why I was so aware of Michael and what he was going through. Another really important influence on my early education or my informal education were my grandparents, my paternal grandparents. They're central to some of my fondest memories growing up. They lived in Nashville, where I was born, and where both sides of our family had lived for generations. And as the oldest grandchild, I had the job of giving them their grandparent names. So it was Bigga, because I couldn't say Big Mama, and Day for Granddaddy. My uh, parents and I moved away from Nashville shortly after I was born, but my sisters and I got to visit them every summer and Christmas. And they took us to museums, we went swimming and fishing, we picked blackberries in the woods behind their house. We played dress-up. There was just such sweetness and fun in everything we did. Um, they just were devoted to us, and we adored them. Great food was really important in our family, and my grandparents had a formal dining room with a long antique table that could easily seat 12. And Bigga would always be at the one end down by the kitchen, and Day would be all the way down at the other end, at the other head of the table. And to this day, I wonder if they sat that way when it was just the two of them at home. <laughs> Anyway, my sisters and I would be somewhere in the middle, and our goal was always to get Day to talking. My grandfather was a fantastic storyteller. He talked about his childhood and his friends growing up. Um, he talked about this time that he and his cousin Bill hitchhiked out west in the 1930s to pan for gold. Mostly he talked about his family, our family history, 
about our ancestors who first came to America and those who settled in Tennessee. And both of my grandparents could tell you why someone was a third cousin twice removed instead of a second cousin thrice removed without batting an eye. And I'm sure you have related to some of those people like that that know that. Um, but the person that my grandparents talked about the most was our ancestor, Adelicia Hayes Acklin. Adelicia is my great-great-great-aunt, and her sister Corinne was Day's uh, great-grandmother. Adelicia was born in 1817, and she was a belle of the antebellum South. She was beautiful and savvy and threw fabulous parties. They said at one time she was one of the wealthiest women in the South, and in my 10-year-old imagination, this was just all so romantic, just like Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind. Adelicia's home in Nashville was called Belmont, now the site of Belmont College. Belmont was occupied by the Union Army during the Civil War, as was her sister Corinne's home next door. And my grandparents spoke with pride at what the family had done to survive that time, but also with pain at what they had endured and what they lost. You know, I never really wondered much about how Adelicia got her wealth, except that I knew it was through marriage and she was married three times and that one of her husbands had plantations in Tennessee and Louisiana. As I got older, of course, I realized that plantations meant slavery. But I didn't learn much about slavery in high school either. And so it wasn't until years later that I started researching Adelicia. Were those stories really true? Had they been embellished? Well, it turns out they were true. She was one of the wealthiest women of her time. How? Through her marriage to her first husband, Isaac Franklin. He was the co-founder of Franklin and Armfield, the largest slave trading firm in U.S. history. It was then that I learned that Adelicia and Isaac Franklin enslaved over 750 people. And that their largest plantation was called Angola, now the site of the Louisiana State Penitentiary and the largest maximum security prison in America. I was stunned at my own ignorance and at the silence surrounding this part of our family history. How could we know so much about our ancestors and their descendants? And nothing, not a word about those 700 enslaved people and their descendants, whose lives are certainly intertwined with mine and this world we live in now. For the longest time, I didn't really know what to do with this knowledge of our family history. I didn't know how to talk about it. To what end? And then a few years ago, a relative gave me a book that had been passed down in our family for generations. I think it had been sitting in a bottom of a closet for a really long time. It's entitled Religion and Slavery, A Vindication of Southern Churches. 
The book's author is Reverend James McNeely. He's a Presbyterian minister and Confederate veteran from Nashville. And he enslaved the book, or he uh, inscribed the book to my great-great-great-grandmother. To Mrs. Corinne Lawrence, a tried and true friend of many years and a devoted lover of the Old South, which I have tried to vindicate. This book was published in 1911. And it defends slavery as, quote, appropriate and benevolent for an inferior race. Unquote. McNeely wrote that he endeavored to prove that in the old system, slaveholders did discharge their religious responsibilities for the souls of their slaves. And that the evils of slavery that the abolitionists fought, well, those were just misunderstandings and misinformation told by people with a prejudice against Southerners. There were passages like this underlined in this book, and they echoed some of the same sentiments I heard from my grandparents. Maybe not the exact same words, maybe one of them would say it, but the other wouldn't challenge it. It was never said with malice, it was just matter of fact, not anything to question. This book became for me a tangible example of how our knowledge of the past gets passed on. We were just another family passing on the myths and prejudices that were the narrative in our world, the stories we told. So how do we break out of that pattern? I wish that I had asked my grandparents if they had ever questioned those beliefs or had experiences that challenged them. Maybe there were times when they spoke out or, or at least wished that they had. And what would have happened if we had had that honest and hard conversation about the devastating impact white supremacy has had on our society. You know, I think about those early experiences of my youth that were so formative, with Michael on the bus and my empathy for him and my shame at not having spoken up, and my relationship with my grandparents, whom I love and are so central to my sense of family. And yet, we were part of a dominant culture that passed on this false narrative about history and race from generation to generation. In both of those experiences, I was still a bystander. What would it take for me to learn how to be an agent of change, to be an upstander? It would take the courage to use my voice. And for me, the power of using my voice why it mattered came through the lessons of history, and in particular, the experience of Elizabeth Eckford of the Little Rock Nine. You've probably seen the photos. Elizabeth Eckford, African-American teenage girl in her crisply ironed white dress, sunglasses, arrives at, on her first day of school, and when she gets there, She's confronted by a crowd, a mob of young white people, their faces contorted in hateful expressions. And Elizabeth's got her books just held tightly to her chest. She's alone. She's separated from the other eight students. With the crowd growing behind her, she walks toward the entrance to the school, 
and she sees the Arkansas National Guard armed with bayonets to keep her out. So Elizabeth makes her way back through that mob to a bus stop where she waits. And the mob continues to spit and taunt and cheer. And then through the crowd, a white woman emerges, Grace Lorch. She makes her way through the crowd and to Elizabeth, and then she confronts that mob. She's scared. She's just a little girl. And then Grace Lorch takes Elizabeth and escorts her to safety. Elizabeth later said of her ordeal, I had this tremendous feeling of being alone. I didn't know how I was going to get out of there. I didn't know if I would be injured. There was a deafening roar. I could hear individual voices, but I wasn't conscious of numbers. I was conscious of being alone. I couldn't help but think about Michael and how alone he must have felt on that bus and my own lack of courage at speaking up for him. Of course, those were completely different circumstances, and I wasn't any danger, in any danger, and we certainly weren't members of a group that was a target for racial terror. Elizabeth Eckford and Grace Lorch became, for me, my first examples of upstanders who inspired me. But more importantly, they helped me understand the, the power of standing up for what you believe in and what that really takes. Elizabeth Eckford, after President Eisenhower sent in the 101st Airborne and the school reopened, Elizabeth went back. She and those other eight students suffered daily attacks, bullying, threats, teachers' indifference. Even as that happened, Elizabeth went back. Those nine African-American students were teenagers, and they were agents of change. And that's when I realized that I have a responsibility, a duty, to use my voice. And that duty includes using my voice to talk about my family history, not for blame or shame, but to reckon with that past and its legacies, to shine the light of truth with honesty, humility, and commitment. You know, for most of us, the times when we're going to have to use our voice are in our daily encounters. It's on the school playground. It's at the family dinner table. But we must use our voices to stand up for human rights and to stand up to bigotry and hate. We have the power to shape educational experiences for young people both in school and in what gets passed on. And when we do, when we provide them with the tools of empathy, lessons of history, and how to use their voice, they will become agents of change. And they will help us create a more compassionate, informed, and just world. Today, there are thousands of students across the globe learning how to make change and making change. Some of them are famous, right? Malala. 
the March for Our Lives students, the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, and many of them are just right here in Memphis, where our Facing History students are agents of change, and they're speaking up on things they care about, about voting and the issues that really matter to them. One of those students spoke at that event last fall to a room full of 100 adults, Anna, and she talked about how Facing History helped her think about her responsibility and how she was going to use her voice. And then Anna said this, I'm turning 15 in four days, and I know I have a duty. Do you know yours? The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.